From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. While hotspots like North Korea, Iran, and Syria have dominated international headlines over the past few years, Chinese activities in the South China Sea have generated their own interest and concern, particularly from neighboring nations and the U.S. and its allies. In an effort to expand their territorial waters, China has embarked on a massive engineering project, turning semi-submerged coral atolls in archipelagos like the Spratly Islands into fortified artificial islands that now host Chinese military airstrips, anti-aircraft missile batteries, naval ports for warships, and troop barracks. Once built, the Chinese have sought to limit both maritime and airspace access to this region, claiming it as sovereign territory. The Chinese efforts not only challenge their neighbors' sovereignty and international agreements like the Law of the Sea Treaty, they also represent the leading edge of Chinese efforts at achieving hegemony in Asia and beyond. The U.S. and its allies have not acceded to these Chinese claims, using both diplomatic pressure and freedom of navigation exercises, basically U.S. and allied ships sailing through the region, to show that the Chinese territorial claims are in dispute. To discuss what's happening in the South China Sea and to give his first-hand perspective, we are joined by Hudson Institute Senior Fellow Jonas Perella plesner who recently returned from a 12-day trip aboard a French naval vessel conducting freedom of navigation exercises near the disputed Spratly Islands. A native of Denmark, Perella plesner is a veteran of the Danish Foreign Service, most recently serving in the Danish Embassy in Washington. Before that, Jonas worked at the European Council on Foreign Relations as a senior policy fellow with a focus on European-Chinese relations. He served in Denmark's Ministry of Foreign Affairs as Senior Advisor on China and Northeast Asia from 2005 to 2009 and has provided testimony on Chinese investments in Europe to the United States Congress and European Parliament's Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committees. In 2015, he co-authored the book China's Strong Arm, Protecting Citizens and Assets Abroad. He has even served in the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs while studying at the École Nationale d'Administration in Paris. Jonas, thanks for joining us on Policy Talk. I know our listeners are really interested in, uh, in hearing about your experiences in the South China Sea, and we appreciate you being here. Um, now, we both grew up, we're about of similar ages, I believe, although you look 10 years younger than I do. Um, but we both grew up in the... Thanks, Brian, both for having me on the show and for that <laughs> initial compliment. I already like being on. Um, we, uh, we both grew up, you know, kind of in the heart of the Cold War and can remember the tension that existed. I mean, you were in Europe, I assume. Uh, remember the tension that existed between the, the Soviet Eastern Bloc and, and the Western Allies. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it's been 27 years since, since that ended. And there's just been a huge, for those of us that lived through that tension, there's been a huge uh, relief to not have it, have it out there. But as I've been watching this uh, develop in the South China Sea, it really kind of feels like these uh, cold, the Cold War style of interaction or, and uh, kind of low-grade conflict uh, that we've seen there. So um, uh, want to give us a quick synopsis of, of what's going on there for our listeners that haven't maybe followed this too closely, how we got to this point, um, what the Chinese are up to, and, and give us some background. Sure, happy to. I mean, the South China Sea is basically a sort of the sea that goes all the way from China, then along the Vietnamese coast um, to Malaysia and over and touches Indonesia, Brunei, and the Philippines. So in reality, even though it's called the South China Sea and sort of you might think, oh, isn't it all just China's, which is actually what China is claiming, there are neighbors there who are saying this is also our sea and they have their own claims in the sea. So that's basically sort of the initial 
uh, thing here is a sort of a maritime dispute among China and its neighbors. China is claiming that the whole sea is, is China's, based on this sort of what's called a nine-dash line, which is a map which actually is only from the 40s. That, uh, but the Chinese then claim that they've they've been there since time immemorial, and that and that's a map that the Chinese came up with themselves after Japan was defeated in World War II. They kind of filled that that void that the Japanese had, had taken over, and it is, and it even has an interesting genesis in the sense that it was actually the the nationalist government that drew the map uh, before the, the the sort of the Chinese um, Communist Party took over in 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 sort of the early forties. So the, the the Chinese, the PRC, the People's Republic of China, has then taken over that map and since made it into official history and part of sort of a little bit their victory narrative of them restoring China to former glory and having sort of hold the whole motherland united, where, of course, Taiwan also plays a big role in that narrative. For the South China Sea is an important component of that. These are sort of uh, Chinese seas. And, and, of course, the difficulty is that this, it, in reality... This goes all the way close up to the sea borders of, of the neighboring countries, meaning that you would have, and something as the Spratly Islands that we're going to talk about, um, they're actually more than a, a thousand miles away from the Chinese coastline. So I think a first reminder is just to say, well, even though it's called the South China Sea, is really this is actually quite a distance, uh, a, a big part of the sea from China itself. So the law of the sea, just so we, we cover kind of the legal and international aspect here, international law aspect of this, the law of the sea states that um, nations can have up to 200 miles off their borders uh, for their exclusive economic zones, which means if any oil deposits or gas are in that area, that they have exclusive claim to that. In an area this kind of tight, uh, those borders overlap in quite a few places. And as you mentioned, the Spratly Islands, which is where we'll be talking about in a moment, where you went, the South China Sea, that that's well within the the uh, 200 miles of the Philippines and, and other uh, nations there. And those islands, and we use that term a little bit loosely because they're really just coral atolls and uh, piles of sand that are sometimes exposed when the tide's high and or when the tide's low and not exposed when the tide's high um, are not true islands in that sense, although the Chinese are are, are making them into they're so building them what have they been do, what have they been doing there they've been doing exactly that they created out of sort of low tide elevations that didn't really carry under the law of the sea uh, any type of economic zone they've been building them into islands and then after building them into islands they've been then sort of uh, doing militarization of the islands and putting different type of sort of dual use or straight out military assets there so they were basically building a sort of stronger military position uh, in the region and thereby in the first place, eroding the home advantage that the neighboring state had to Philippines, Vietnam, and in the larger game also with the U.S., of course, that has sort of the naval supremacy in this area. They're also building sort of to gradually try to push the, the U.S. out of uh, the South China Sea. Now, they claim this is not military, that this is their islands they've traditionally had. But as we look at the the pictures coming out, both... Uh, well, we we see the I see the non classified versions, but it's pretty obvious they're building military bases here. There's ten thousand foot long landing strips. There's anti aircraft defenses. There's barracks for you know troops that that are uh, taking over these islands. There's there's ports for their warships. Uh, what's their claim that these are not military? I, I mean, they've said openly, no, this is not a military excursion, but it looks pretty clear that it is. Is it not? 
True. I mean, uh, Xi Jinping, when he, he was visiting Washington in 2015, promised on sort of the white lawn that they would not militarize the islands, which has been part of what this administration has been holding the Chinese up on when Secretary Mattis recently rescinded China's invitation to RIMPAC, a big naval exercise, on that basis of saying you promised us something which is not uh, sticking. I mean, when the Chinese try to defend it, they would say that these or they would use the dual use aspect of saying they, these are all either defensive or they're for Coast Guard rescue, or for if it's the big satellites, but that's all meteorological in order to examine the weather in the region. So, of course, they give it a, a different sort of interpretation, but there's no doubt that this is sort of massive military installation as well that, that serve uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, Navy and, and Army in the area. So you bring up the AP recently reported uh, last week that uh, – the obvious that Mattis had said openly that that Beijing is using quote intimidation and coercion in the South China Sea uh, was this an escalation of the U.S. response to this or is this where we've always been? I would say it's it's more or less where you always been. I mean, there was just a little bit of of, of new developments that uh, sort of the U.S. announced officially that they considered militarization uh, after Spratleys and that the Chinese landed a strategic bomber on the Paracels. Uh, so those were sort of new, which I think was a lot of the backdrop for Mattis' speech at the, the Shangri-La uh, dialogue that brings together uh, in Singapore each year defense ministers from the region and the U.S. as well. Um, but otherwise, this has been something that the U.S. has been sort of calling out for uh, for years. And, and in reality, you might say that under the Trump administration, it may be fallen a little bit down the priority list because you've had North Korea, which, of course, has been so big of getting sort of Chinese um, assistance in, in trying to afford a diplomatic uh, deal with North Korea and, and sanctions as well. And secondly, sort of the China-U.S. trade uh, frictions that are ongoing now. So, so in a sense, South China Sea has been a little bit uh, further down the radar. You could say Matt is sort of reminded everybody by by talking publicly about it that this is actually also a big sort of challenge the whole question of freedom of navigation which is really sort of at stake is whether can china make this into a chinese lake that they completely uh, control where uh, according to the law of the sea a lot of this is international waters that's right so there's the freedom of navigation we'll talk about that in a second there's also the uh, airspace over these islands which they um, are, are are trying to claim that this is an air identification zone. They haven't gotten quite to that point yet, but that means that planes flying from other nations will have to declare themselves flying over. So when the U.S. Uh, a couple weeks ago uh, sent a pair of B-52 bombers over this area, it was done to as a freedom of navigation exercise in the, in the airspace, and China did not take kindly to that. Their military spokeswoman warned uh, against, quote, hyping up militarization and stirring up trouble while promising that China would take all necessary measures to defend its sovereignty. Uh, those, again, this reminds me of the Cold War. Uh, there is a lot of uh, brinksmanship and, and back and forth uh, and testing each other's resolve, uh, but uh, it we'll, we'll see where it's headed. So right now, um, how are China's neighbors U.S. The U.S. allies, or Philippines particularly, but even Vietnam and 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 Malaysia are not uh, happy with this. How are they responding to to these uh, adventures, China's uh, on these islands? Yeah, one general word about what it compares best to for me is maybe not even the Cold War. It's more, I think, as a European, the feeling 
when you're a small state surrounded by Bismarck's Germany that's sort of growing into power. So this is basically yeah, a rising power yeah. that we've seen through history. And China's promised all of us it's going to be peaceful. Uh, and you have the established power in the, in the area, which is the United States. That's been sort of the guarantee for the sea lanes and alliances that's on the pin uh, the region. And so we're both seeing that power play play out. We're seeing this is the sort of the litmus test whether will China really be peaceful all along or or will it be different? And so so that sort of leads me to the neighbors. I mean, for the neighbors, there feels like there's a huge shadow that's sort of being cast over them, which is China's sort of looming uh, military modernization and that it's had double-digit defense budget growth over the last um, many years. So if you're Vietnam, you can even see, I think Vietnam is the most telling case. Vietnam that sort of fought the U.S. in the Vietnam War and has the whole sort of acrimonious war history uh, with the U.S. is actually these last years turning uh, quite considerably to the U.S. and you have, uh, the U.S. has lifted the, the arms embargo or you're now selling, um, uh, among other things, maritime systems to the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese are interested in having these sort of defense uh, contacts. And the only reason is really China. And, and that's part of it. They feel sort of threatened uh, in the region by China. Um, Vietnam is probably the one among the neighbors that's most willing. Uh, they had their own war with, with China in 79, um, and which they, they sort of did fairly well against the, the Chinese. Um, in 88, uh, the Chinese took over the Paracels Island from Vietnam, and they've now been, they're quite determined not to lose islands again. So they're actually pursuing both a diplomatic uh, strategy, but just as much also a military one, which in a sense resembles a mini version of China's versions against the U.S. is it's asymmetric. That they're looking at capabilities because they know the, the Vietnamese can never match the Chinese. So they're saying, how can we then actually match them mathematically? So they're, they're buying a lot of submarines, which, of course, have the capacity to sink the Chinese ships around right. the, the islands and and therefore sort of put China that they need to go higher up the escalation ladder in order to really push the Vietnamese uh, out. So, so do you think, and it's great to get the European perspective that you have. I, again, I've got the American perspective where the Cold War was uh, between two superpowers and you often forget about the smaller nations that were you know, in between this battle, it's very similar to what's going on here with Vietnam. Do you do you expect the Vietnamese then to be the? Uh, I mean, Philippines has been very unhappy as well. But if there's any chance for conflict, is are the Vietnamese the most likely? For a conflict that would escalate, Vietnam would be my bet on sort of the most likely, and also the ones that would be most hard, I think, to handle here in in the U.S. Whereas the Philippines. I mean, you have a defense treaty. There is so much weaker than the Chinese. So if the Chinese really beat them up, you would somehow, uh, would be my estimate, be sort of compelled to do something with Vietnam. Yeah. is also an old, still with memories of an old wartime, and it's still a communist system and, and not an ally of the U.S. So if, if, if China and Vietnam went to loggerheads about this, how um, would both you, how would the rest of the countries react? Um, so um, it do, it does explain a bit how the Vietnamese of our relations have gotten a lot better in the last few years as the uh, you know China's uh, hegemonic expansion in that region has threatened them and, and the other nations. It, it's an exactly, dynamic. E- each of the countries try to have different hedging strategies. I mean, they all know there's a, the tyranny of geography that China is going to stay there like it's been there for millennia. It's going to stay there. Uh, all of them have continuously sort of doubts about the U.S. whether. 
is what was under Obama called the rebalance to Asia. Is that permanent? Is that going to stick? They have the same questions probably under, under Trump all the time. The fact that the U.S. is, of course, primarily an Asian power through sort of uh, the forward presence in, in bases in the region. And that's sort of what makes it, which could be at some point, if you're an Asian, could be pull pull back. But right now, of course, when they do best these smaller neighbors, they just like to be able to sort of hedge between one and the other. So most of these South uh, East Asian nations, they do lots of trade with China. And China yeah. is really the big trading hub. Um, a country like Singapore. But at the same time, they also want part of sort of the military umbrella from uh, from the U.S. So all of them has been been pursuing these different sort of strategies in, in within that spectrum. Philippines, for example, tried, which was interesting, the legal route, uh, which again, as a European, I sort of um, appreciated and, and admired. So on, under Aquino, the former president, they actually took China to court and over this and said, we have to so- solve this peacefully. You were saying you're, you're going to be a continuously peaceful country, so let's, let's go to court. China refused to sort of even engage in the court case. And, but it went ahead under the, the law of the sea um, uh, rules and actually came out, um, even though it was not supposed to rule on sovereignty, but it came out, I would say, against the Chinese claims in the, in, in the, right. in the sense that it said historic claims do not have any right in, um, in law of the sea. And here it comes to sort of China's claim of the nine dash line of saying we just have to sort of line that we've drawn some, at some point on a map that that's ours. Yeah. And, 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 and that goes back thousands of years. The Chinese have a rich history that they remind the rest of the world about, which is they've been a civilization that's existed there for a long time. And so it's it, the South China Sea, this nine dash line goes, was the, the basis for it went back well beyond that when they said it in the, in the 1940s. Right, but that's where they're also making a little bit of sort of make-believe uh, history, I would sure. say. Because if you, if you look at sort of the old maps and, and some of the reefs that I, I was sailing by, uh, actually, let's take one of those, Mischief Reef, which is named after um, a sailor or a clipper that, that, that went aground. Uh, all the names that we have, the English names we have, are typically of sailors from the 19th century that, that were in the region. The Chinese um, call that Meiji Zhao, which is basically just a transliteration of, meaning mischief. They, of, of mischief, yeah. meaning they did not have their own name for it when they had to sort of make the map uh, in the 40s. That's a good point. So there are several of these where you can see that in reality, they've just based themselves on maps that were available uh, at the time uh, and didn't really actually, as complete anecdote, uh, the, the French... Uh, when they still had Indochina and Vietnam uh, as a colony, actually claimed the Spratlys in '33, And the Chinese government at that time didn't really protest for a long time because they actually went all the way over um, to the Philippines and asked the, the American legation there for a more precise map of where these islands were. So that sort of shows, and a lot of that history has now been completely silenced in sort of yeah. by sort of the communist on the mainland, by that phrase of saying it's been ours since ancient time. Sure, sure. So I actually want to... Well, it's, po- the mi- it's the myth of... I want to poke a little bit no, of... No, you of, should. Of, I, was, of hold, I was offering their perspective. Of holes I- I- into that and yeah. saying they, they are... That's, that's what they like us to, to say as well. Oh, sure. And that's where I'm saying maybe even with the name where sometimes the fact that it's called the South China Sea, right. because the Vietnamese call it, of course, the East Sea, the, the, yeah. the Philippines call it the West Philippine Sea. Um, so by, by... And they have histories too. So and they have histories <laughs> in, in the region too. Good. Well, let's talk about your your trip there. 
So uh, you joined the French Navy um, on a freedom of navigation exercise. You want to tell us how that came about, and, uh, and then we'll kind of walk through it. It's very interesting from what, what you've told me already. Yeah, with pleasure. I mean, this was this great opportunity that I'm, um, I'm Danish-French by nationality, so, and I've been to um, a French school called National Administration, so I've been working in the French system uh, as well. So it was through sort of old contacts um, uh, there that I've kept up with when they passed through Washington in the French Ministry of Defense. And, uh, and they were yearly uh, or, or several times a year doing these missions through the, the South China Sea. And um, and I got the opportunity to uh, to join this time around. So I boarded in in Darwin in Australia, and then by helicopter, right? By helicopter, <laughs> which is uh, a great because I I actually missed the boat, which you shouldn't do with a with a warship because it sails on time. Yes, and my plane was delayed, and I ended as, up as much influence as Hudson Institute has. They do not hold French warships for our they for do our not senior fellows. So uh, so I ended up being even more extravagant, flown on board with a, on a helicopter, which was a great way to ride with your suitcase uh, when you step yeah. out on the on the helico- helicopter flight deck. Um, so I was on this um, French helicopter uh, transport ship, um, and which was escorted by a French uh, frigate. Um, and so we went um, that way up through uh, all, all the way up to the South China Sea and into and ended up in. How long did it take you to get from Darwin to South China Sea? Uh, Twelve days was the whole trip. So um, and and all the way to Saigon and and, and Vietnam. Is that where you, is that where you disembarked? Was that's where I um, I disembarked and then came back here to, here to the U.S. Um, and so what what was the mission of this this trip? I mean, we call it a freedom of navigation exercise. Is is yeah. it purely to test the the uh, international water claim or not the the sovereign claims of the Chinese? I mean, for the whole trip from Darwin to, I mean, the French had different op- other objectives as well. They were training their officers, cadet, which were on, on board, so they were all from like uh, boarding exercises to uh, to terrorists in the Sulu Sea to sort of pirates and. Um, um, so all run, that was. Did you run into any pirates? We, I did not see okay. any any pirate. We got to swim. Second, you say pirates. It, uh, swim the Sulu Sea, and I, I, if I were the smaller pirates, I would be scared off of yeah, two, two warships. And and then two and a half days were really the passage sort of through the the Spratlys, which of course sort of our main uh, topic here, where we went in relatively slowly because the French. Yes, the French. Why do they do this? They do it because um, the fact that that the Chinese primarily claim... So they don't want to enter the sovereignty dispute of saying that they know, um, similar to the U.S. position, that they would know who is actually owns these islands. Right. They're just saying, we're allowed to sail here. Um, you cannot claim uh, on any on any circumstances or under the law of the sea that you cannot sort of just sail through. And, and that's basically what the Chinese are trying to do is they want to circumscribe, not for commercial, but for military transit, they want a pre-notification and they basically want to sort of be able to control that. So that's what the French were challenging. And then when we sailed through first uh, Mischief Reef, then Subi Reef, and then Fury Cross Reef. And these three reefs are also interesting because it's some of these that if you follow this issue that they've been militarized the most in sort of the, the, the last year. So there was also an element of of uh, intelligence that the French were sending up helicopters and and a drone that they, they were trying out. They were, of course, taking photos uh, yeah, of, of the islands, which anyway, on unclassified, 
material you can see there's this um, maritime tracking actually over our um, another think tank here in town CSIS yeah. that that tracks that quite well with commercial right. Uh, right. photos so I'm not sure uh, that it gets a lot it's, more it's than to show them though first of all there are changes week to week on these on right. these islands they're building so quickly but it also shows them that we're here and we know what you're doing and and we're a we're a power. So when when the French ship approaches, did they give any warning at all that we're coming into the into this uh, group of islands? They just no. Obviously, and the Chinese are tracking the ship probably from the second it leaves Darwin, and they know where it's headed. But um, there's no uh, pre warning, correct? There's no there's no pre warning. That's part of sort of the whole uh, upholding free enough navigation in in this sort of military way. So what happened? was that when we came into the South China Sea and came in proximity to the first of the, um, of the sort of the islands, or reefs rather, in the, or features in, in, the, in the Spratlys, uh, a Chinese warship uh, came up and then started calling us over the command bridge where I spent two days sort of following what, uh, what, what went on. And so, so this sort of very familiar voice uh, uh, came over. So now you have audio of that, correct? I do. Yeah. So this okay. is like this is all right. So l- why don't we uh, play that audio for our listeners? Thank you, You are approaching our reef. Please inform your next intention to avoid misunderstanding. For so tell us what we just heard. Well, this is the Chinese calling in on the bridge. This would be a sort of the family refrain for for the people on the bridge. And for me, who is up there, of course, listening to it. So they would call in several times saying that uh, you're in, in our orders. Um, what are your intentions? Which was typically when... Uh, the French send up uh, helicopters or, or, or drones. They would sort of ask um, for clarification. They did also say it's one of the, the times they did sort of leave. Um, and, uh, but there was also, I mean, not to make it all up to sort of the, um, the whole uh, volume, there were also niceties that when we, they left us, finally the Chinese uh, ships that tailed us um, out of the Spratly Islands, I think one of them called the other bridge and says, have a safe journey. Okay. So uh, it wasn't. It wasn't so, all, all all menacing. So wh- how close were there? Describe it for us. How close did the ships get? Did they were there aircraft that were hovering over? What was it like? They were typically around four nautical miles away. I mean, two nautical miles is in in. in I'm, I was learning all this on the trip is like when it, it's considered sort of menacing. Mm-hmm. Um, that only happened once and was sort of a little bit by um, more by accident, than, okay. which of course but, is also what sometimes makes up uh, conflict, which for me was a little bit of a sort of Wagnerian moment we had on board where um, we meet up with our... Um, uh, with the the frigate that's been on a, on a different trajectory to the Spratly Islands, the French frigate, the, the frigate, exactly the French frigate, and the Chinese have their frigate and another corvette that also come in, and then suddenly we have this sort of haze fog coming in over, and there's hail, hail in the South China Sea. You're like, wait, is it going to snow? Yeah. It looked very sort of like odd as a natural phenomenon, mm-hmm. and then we couldn't suddenly couldn't see one of the one of the the Chinese ship, and it sort of came out of the fog, sort of very close. Okay. Because he was trying to sort of cut over in order to 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 move side. Now, and two nautical miles sounds far. Is it is it 
within your line of sight that yeah, looks closer? Or is it, it when uh, when you're on, on on the bridge? I would say two nautical miles doesn't feel that, uh, and you're going at some speed, and, and mm-hmm. these are big warships that you say oh, there isn't that much distance before you can can really uh, see each other and have to. But yeah, but it was never I would say. Um, uh, really sort of dangerous. And I think yeah. to underline that, the French were, for example, still training their officers cadet, yeah, which they had on board. So it wasn't that they were seeing it either as a, a mission that was that dangerous that they couldn't have both observers as me up yeah, on right. the bridge and that they could have uh, officers in training that were at the same time being sort of trained in the different... Um, How many crew are on, on this ship? The transport ship, because they had uh, officers in training, uh, was um, uh, almost 500 people. Okay. Yeah, so they had 120 um, 120, uh, officers uh, undergoing training. So the Chinese are, you said it wasn't too tense, but it was obviously a moment. There are moments when you know you're confronting them. Um, Did you feel like that, was there somebody who's a diplomat on board? I mean, you're a, you're a diplomat per se, but is there somebody there to, uh, is there a, is there a set of rules or standard procedures that the French Navy has for dealing with this so that things don't escalate? Uh, and did you get a, a taste of any of those? Yes, actually they, they used something which is called the cues, which I, I hadn't heard about before, which, but it is an effort at sea to sort of avoid incidents. And which is a basically almost like a Morse system where you just say a number of, of, of letters. So I, since I didn't know the different ones, didn't right. really make sense to me. But would be a simple way of saying we're having a helicopter go up. And that was really when you, you would say when you're in the vicinity of each other. I'm basically just signaling. Intent. So you're telling the other, the Chinese yeah. ship, we're about to send up a helicopter. Exactly. Or a, and, and if you want to go in sort of the teasing part, then they tried to do the same and say, we're going to send up a helicopter. And okay. they, then they gave us coordinates, which was basically their whole reef. Uh-huh. And saying we're doing a helicopter zone <laughs> here, so you cannot actually go near here, right. which is not a term that apparently existed in in these sort of queues that okay. you could say like a whole area is then sort of blocked. So that was right. another way they were giving you a no fly zone. They which were basically was their giving small no fly zone, and, and claiming then, that they were going to have aircraft in that. So ex- it'd yeah, be that they would be training okay. in that. So we would. Um, so so in that sense, yeah, there is is. Communication and from I think from either side, if if of course are they communicating? What language are we talking about here? I mean, we heard in the audio, yeah, it's English it, and it, it's English, and and they would always most of them would give us it this precisely the same message in in, in Chinese as well afterwards, uh, but but initially call in uh, in English. Okay, interesting. So. You spent how many days kind of cruising around? Two, two and a half? Two, two, yeah, two and a half days. Are you constantly moving? Do you ever drop anchor and say we're just going to hang out here for a while and deal with it? We slowed down quite a bit because we had the helicopter and the drones going out. So okay. for them, in order to sort of return to the, the ship, the ship is not uh, moving a lot during that. So it, it was sort of compared to the distance cover because then it was relatively slow moving sort of two days in in, in the Spratly. Right. Um and and then the Chinese, as an interesting feature, sort of the Chinese warship uh, kept following us even when we left the Spratlys and actually very close to sort of Vietnamese territorial waters, okay. uh, escorting us almost all the way to uh, to Saigon, a way of sort of really underlining these are our waters and uh, we have now escorted you safely out of them. Okay, yeah, they're they're treating it as if they own it, which is which is what we're disputing. Did you? How close did you get to the island itself? Um, could you see the islands from where you – I mean, you obviously could see them off in the distance, but could you 
you know, were you close enough that you could see the features of them, the buildings? Not really, to be honest. Um, I, 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 that was, of course, one of my dreams as well, getting right. on board. I mean, I got all the sort of the, the, the excitement and movement up on being on the bridge. But uh, even with binoculars, I would say actually the ones I saw the best were during the night when we passed because the Chinese don't turn off the light. So you can see the halos from all the different buildings okay, that, okay. that light up in the distance. But otherwise, they are quite flat. And yeah. were most of them just like low tide elevation that was basically and they've now been built on. So they're still relatively uh, sort of flat on the horizon. So How, they, they obviously had to build them up. Is there Are there seawalls around them for tides or even rising seas over time? Yeah, or several, on several of them, it's, it's been sort of like almost like an, uh, a toll, and then they've sort of built, used that structure around and then dredged them in the middle in order okay. to, uh, to be able to, uh, to build on them. I mean, it's ecologically also a disaster because they were coral reefs and and, and that you've yeah, sort of dest- you've destroyed in this uh, in this process and and I don't know about the long lasting whether you They didn't do any sort of environmental assessment prior, I would suspect. No, I, like I, our I, Army Corps of Engineers would have done. <laughs> um so did did the French feel this was a successful mission? Yeah, I mean they they are, have done this actually consistently um, since uh, actually since two fourteen, okay. which is also part of why I thought interesting as being an observer there from uh, from Hudson of writing about this uh, as I did in the Wall Street Journal, because there's been quite a lot of reaction to that and yeah. and it wasn't that known here in 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 Washington that France also actually has a, a presence in the region. It's because they still have their overseas territories in um, right. in. Uh, New Caledonia um, and in French Polynesia. Right. So therefore, it's uh, part of what makes it even possible for them. Well, and the most, connection with Vietnam, I'm sure, sure is still and, and there's still a, there, and, and, and a historical connection yeah. with uh, Vietnam as well. Um, and um, yeah, so, so so France has actually been sort of doing this sort of consistently. I would say a little bit more under the radar from both sides. The Chinese, interesting enough, only call out the Americans when you do phone ops operation, because part of their sort of narrative on hold is, is that they're just defending their territory and their own, which they're entitled to, and that it's the Americans that are basically pushing them in right. the region. So that's the thing they push to their own population. That's the thing they push to their neighbors. Uh, so the French and others don't really fit well into that narrative because they're actually there because of upholding freedom of navigation, right. uh, which is also the, uh, what uh, the U.S. is seeking to do. And so the, the Chinese, therefore, did not make any sort of public statement on an interesting, like, two days before we went through in sort of late May, um, the U.S. did a phone ops up in the Paracel Islands, which the Chinese sort of pr- protested officially. Um, okay. So, and the French didn't get any official protest, but only got, like, of course, the sort of the, the calls over the, the command bridge the, that we've talked about. So, again, I think it's good that your Wall Street Journal piece educated Americans on we're not the only ones doing these freedom of navigation exercises. Are there any other European nations or other allies that are that are doing these as well? Well, the the Brits have also just done their first passage through the the Spratlys. There was also a British helicopter detachment. Actually, the the helicopter that took me on board was a British one. Okay. Um, and um, which now, when the, if Brits are heading out of the EU, is was of course more based on a bilateral agreement with the uh, with the French. Um, the French are trying to get Europe way more involved in this and want to move Europe beyond just declaration of uh, solving this peacefully and respecting international law. Um, so actually, the mission I was on also had European observers, naval captains from other European nations, which is sort of part okay. of France's way of 
of uh, making other European nations aware of this and and uh, hoping that it could sort of develop into a, a European multinational type of uh, patrol. So it's good to see there are allies out there kind of pushing back on this, especially our European friends. Um, we we just took a group of Hudson uh, folks down to see the F-35 assembly, Lockheed's assembly facility down in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and got a good briefing on, on the um, F-35 and how fifth-generation fighters have – such amazing stealth capabilities. And during that briefing, they talked uh, a little bit about how that relates to what's going on in the South China Sea militarily, that the Chinese have witnessed what American air power can do and in, in particularly some of the battles you had in the Middle East, um, how it can, you know, evade the uh, the anti-aircraft uh, missiles that are batteries are set up, even the, even the Soviets S-400, which is the not Soviet, sorry, the Russian S four hundred, which is the which is the most threatening and most uh, technologically advanced, and that part of the reason the Chinese are doing this is they realized we've got to push out the perimeter of our air defenses so that that first wave of of U.S. Uh, if there were ever to be one, which we would hope there wouldn't be, but if there ever to be one, that we need to be prepared to uh, stop that U.S. attack further out and identify it so that we can, before it hits our mainland, uh, as they saw us going to Baghdad and uh, other cities where, uh, countries where that first wave wipes everything, all the anti-aircraft out, and then we can just send in freight loads of bombers that aren't stealthy to just take care of everything else. So there's obviously a military component to this. Um, There's also, I believe, an economic component. We talked about the oil and gas. Is, Is, are those the only two reasons they're doing this, or do we see this as, as an offensive capability for them as well, militarily? Well, I, I would say three reasons. I mean, one is also really national pride. This is part of sort of the, the, the narrative of, of the Chinese Communist Party sort of raising China back to its, its preeminent status with control over its, its own mainland country, of course, Taiwan as well, which is is seen as an integral part of China, right. and and these islands change as part of that. And then comes the two other reasons as well, that for the military, of course, this gives them sort of an opportunity, not only against the U.S., but just as much, I would say, against the neighboring states that, uh, as we mentioned earlier, in these parts of the South China Sea are actually really far away from the Chinese seashore. So Vietnamese, Philippines, even though they're more poorly military equipped, are much closer. So the fact for the Chinese of having bases, and I mean, for me, it was very evident that this trip, at each reef, there was a new Chinese frigate of a destroyer class, actually, that followed us along, meaning that the assets they have there are quite sort of considerable. And uh, so so for, for the neighbors in the first case, this is really sort of shows sort of Chinese strength in, in the region. Because if you look at the U.S. scenario, you could say that which is often uh, sort of said in military circles that in a real conflict, I mean, the U.S. would be able to take out these islands and they're really easy to hit. So um, so in that sense, they perhaps in that sort of, which again, as you just said, God forbid, it doesn't happen in that sort of major scale conflict, they wouldn't necessarily serve the Chinese uh, that much. But I think they do serve maybe a deterrent in the sense that the U.S. would have to put in so massive 
firepower that you would be yeah. quickly in that sort of well, they're major. Well, sentinels out there that exactly. would give so, away it were coming in. So it's, it's yeah, sentinels or tripwires, you yeah, could say a yeah, little bit, right. that sort of saying that if you would have to take them out in order to um, to sort of get into the, um, into the South China Sea. So... Um, so that's definitely sort of military and, and of course, the Chinese Navy is expanding massively. I mean, um, a telling figure that uh, actually one of the French uh, naval captain told me was that what the Chinese have built in the last just four years uh, is the same as the whole French Navy. Wow. So each six week, a new Chinese warship sort of rolls out. And they had earlier this year... Uh, a whole sort of armada that went down through the South China Sea and with uh, sort of Xi Jinping inspecting them. So definitely, I mean, a lot of this, as the French are also, were telling me, I mean, a lot of these, they're not, of course, yet well-trained. They don't, since China do not really have alliances, they don't train with others, so they're not at all in the same way used to, to doing operations. But I would, my layman observation, which is there is still strength in numbers. When you suddenly have... Um, over um, 40 frigates and, and the, the same amount or even more of corvettes and something, even though if uh, several of them aren't well-trained, it's, it's still a lot of sort of uh, it's massive naval power that you, ha- that you have at your disposal. Right. Well, it's been fascinating discussion. Is there anything you, that we missed that you want to add? Well, maybe that I think we all hope that this area was going to be uh, and here my European side kicks in, sort of solved peacefully, but it's also one where you could really see looming both great power conflict between the U.S. and China and uh, between China and it, and its smaller neighbors. So it has really all the ingredients of the sort of test of how rising power comes into the into the system. That's great. One last question. Did you get seasick? I did not, but I only got when I went off board, I... Uh, I felt sort of off kilter for a couple of days after, right. uh, so I walked with sort of odd legs uh, coming off the ship. I was like, what is this feeling? That's, that be- I- that's better than the alternative. So no, that's good. It definitely is. Good. Well, thanks for joining us, Jonas. It's been fascinating. I um, want to thank our listeners for downloading our podcast today. Uh, please, again, subscribe if you haven't already. Rate us and, uh, and tell your friends. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you joining us, Jonas, and we appreciate our listeners. Thank you.